Tonight, I don't have smooth words to share with you. In fact, it won't be easy to listen to, and it will be even harder for me to say. After realizing the message I was feeling impressed to share tonight, like Jonah, I started to think of ways in which I could subtly back out of this so as not to disappoint some of you and infuriate others. But here I am, and here we go. I was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I experienced 16 years of Adventist education. I was active in Pathfinders. I'm headed to Oshkosh next weekend. For more than four years, I've had the honor of serving the World Church at the General Conference, sitting on numerous committees, working on many projects, and giving my all to the Adventist Review. And last but not least, I serve as a volunteer lay pastor of a wonderful church in Adairsville, Georgia. I tell you all of that so that you can see I'm a lifer, and I'm committed to Jesus and this movement. But as I look back at the individuals, many of which I grew up with, there's a sad reality. Too many of them are missing. These are my friends, your classmates, your sons, your daughters, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, large numbers of which don't attend church anymore, at least not a Seventh-day Adventist church. And I'm sad to say that I don't think many of them want anything to do with it. And it's led me to a prayerful conclusion. The church I want to belong to is terrible. Now that you know I've checked my timidity at the door, I'm going to practice something you'll hear me preach about often, candor. Max Dupree said the first role of a leader is to describe reality. And so each of us, in at least one sense, is a leader. We lead a home, a ministry, an institution, a company, a child. As a new dad, I have this huge amount of new appreciation for moms. And for many of us, we lead on multiple levels of life. And so as a leader, I'd like to describe what I see as our reality tonight. The world, by most accounts, both secular and religious, is a ticking time bomb. From sermons on Sunday sacredness to chants on climate catastrophe, Louisville, we have a problem. Whether it's the destruction of the family, 
growing intolerance to free speech, ever-increasing tribalism and racism, draconian surveillance, the rapidly growing tension between the rich and the poor, or the countless attacks on the moral code given to us on Sinai. We need no more evidence that we are living in the last moments of time. And Ellen White's words are truer than ever. Thinking men and women of all classes have their attention fixed upon the events taking place around us. They recognize that something great and decisive is about to take place, that the world is on the verge of a stupendous crisis. But the Bible says that final events are being held back until something dramatic, climactic, and terribly disruptive happens with the remnant of Bible prophecy. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, we hear a warning to some angels, hurt not the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. But that sealing, that settling into the truth both intellectually and spiritually so that we cannot be moved has been stalling as of late. And the temptation for leaders on every level for whom numbers determine position, personnel, power, and pay is to use whatever number sounds good so long as it achieves the end goal of creating a picture that helps and does not hurt me, my team, my company, my church, my conference, my union, my division, my delegates, and my reelection. And it's tempting to share graphs of the millions of visitors to our websites or the tens of millions of followers on our social media accounts or the hundreds of millions of dollars in our bank accounts, offerings, endowments, and reserve funds or the national news stories about how Seventh-day Adventists live longer than the rest of the population, how we're the most diverse, fastest-growing denomination in the United States, or even the success of our healthcare and educational institutions. We could then end this slideshow with a few pictures of soccer stadiums full of believers in line for baptism. But I have a duty, as you have a duty as a leader, to describe what I see. And here are a few examples from the recent Global Church member survey by the General Conference. The growing disparity between numbers of members on the books and those who attend services each week. Fewer than half of Adventists feel satisfied with the state of the local church. The number of people joining and leaving, or worse, joining and staying, who don't understand our message. Or the growing doubt among Adventists about a literal creation week, a heavenly judgment, or what really happens when we die. 
Recent data showing that as a global body, most of us have pushed off our belief in the imminent second coming to a date decades into the future. Or the growing reality that fewer of us go out of our way to witness and share our faith. Now we could look at this data and say, well, many other faith groups seem to have it figured out. What are the denominations around us doing? Can we focus less on our distinctives and more on what we have in common? And my personal opinion is no. Friends and church family, we have a problem. We have a crisis of leadership. And the crisis is not who is in leadership. It's a lack of courage in leadership. We have a crisis of courage. Where are the men and women willing to stand for the right though the heavens fall? Where are those who are true to duty as the needle to the pole, unafraid to call sin by its right name, unafraid their to to lay their careers on the line to do what is right. I believe this is still the greatest one of the world. But Israel also had a crisis of courage, and the tribes finally got what they wanted, a king like the nations around them. They wanted to blend in, and Saul, even though he was a head taller than everyone else, he blended right in because he wasn't a courageous leader. So the Lord tells Samuel the prophet, go to Bethlehem, to Jesse's house, and find me a man with some courage and conviction. And so Samuel, the original kingmaker, arrives. Who will be the next king? And one by one, the sons of Jesse come before him. Ah, this must be the one. All the degrees, all the right letters after his name, the rich olive skin tone, the experience, and he looks the part. But the Lord says, no, I have refused him. I don't see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And we learn here that appearances can be deceiving. Humans often look for all the wrong qualities in a leader. A title does not make a leader. A pedigree does not make a leader. The color of one's skin should never be the differentiating factor. Many today follow those with titles because they believe they have to not because they want to. And we need leaders who fear nothing, who crave duty, and pick up responsibility for such a time as this. So finally, Samuel runs out of strapping young men to anoint as king. Jesse, any more? Well, yeah, one out in the pasture. And David is anointed king and told he will one day be the leader of Israel. But he goes back to doing what he loves. One of the two things Ellen White says are most favorable for character development. Caring for animals. 
And so he spends his days caring for sheep, composing and playing music, and slinging rocks. But Saul, meanwhile, Saul's back at the palace, and he's miserable. And his counselors realize, we got to do something for this guy. Well, we know about the power of music on mood and how the right music can conjure or conquer demonic spirits. So David is called in, and it works. And Saul is at peace. But the future leader of Israel is exposed to a toxic culture of leadership firsthand at the highest levels of the movement. What happens when young aspiring followers of Jesus are exposed to self-absorbed, self-serving leaders? They inevitably get discouraged. We're told in Scripture that you will know a tree by its fruit. And Saul was an unkind, impatient coward who made excuses. Is it possible that when people come around us as leaders in the Advent movement, they see these trees producing abundant flowers, but instead yielding bitter fruit? Ellen White wrote, Men may profess faith in the truth, but if it does not make them kind, sincere, patient, forbearing, heavenly-minded, it is a curse to its possessors, and through their influence, it is a curse to the world. Insincere and timid leadership is a curse, was a curse to ancient Israel, and insincere and timid leadership is a curse to God's people today at every level and ultimately to the world. You know, sometimes God takes us down a path that we would not choose for ourselves. And so as he did with David in the court of Saul, there are many times when we're exposed to leaders and organizations from whom we learn, brace yourselves, what not to do when our time comes around to lead. And that is a bitter experience. And we're told after his days in the court, David loved to go back home to the pastures under the azure firmament to see the stars staring down at him. But a day of decision was coming. Israel was on the verge of a time of trouble such as never was with God's enemies. And for nearly 40 days, Goliath had been taunting Israel and everyone was filled with fear. But just then, the shepherd and the singer, the fighter and the slinger, strolls into the camp of Israel. And he hears the taunts of this Philistine. And he asks why men who were supposed to be warriors, the watchmen in Israel, were standing around and letting him say these things. Aren't you going to do something about this? And there are vibrant spirits among us today. Those who see a different reality than the one often painted by leadership. And they have every right to ask, why are you standing there? 
in that position, with that power, and doing nothing? Why don't you do something? Well, this is the way we've always done it. Will not work anymore. Well, this is in the policy book. Section 13, paragraph 4 is not going to lead anyone into battle. We're told if God abhors, hates one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is doing nothing in a case of an emergency. Indifference or neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. But David has come to the kingdom for this moment. He knows this is the time to speak a word for the Lord and to fight back the temptation like many of us face to keep silent. This is no time for indifference and the status quo. It is time for disruption. Israel was in a crisis of leadership. Saul didn't have the courage to do what was needed and right in that moment. But God had a leader waiting in the wings, and those wings were the wings of some mighty angels. And Ellen White counseled to stand in defense of truth and righteousness. When the majority forsake us, to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few, this will be our test. At this time, we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. And when David gains an audience with the king, he explains his concerns about the status quo. Oh, and he shares with the king his awesome resume. I kill bears and lions, and this giant will be like one of them. And true to form, Saul surrenders. And David is given some armor, some methods for doing things as they always have been done. And he's tempted to fight in another's armor. But then he turns back into the tent. And I'm sure he heard some whispers, has fear gotten the best of him? But for too long, God's people have been responsive, reactive, on the defense. And David says, oh no, this is time for offense. I don't need shields and armor. I need lightness and speed. And he walks out of that tent with a stick and a sling. There was a reason, though, that Israel was afraid. In order to compete with the world, to be players on the world stage, to be respectable, they actually had to go to the world, to the Philistines, to get their weapons. And those weapons were foreign to them, and they did not know how to fight. But the leaders who had been schooled in the West Point of fear and in the classroom of cowardice told them, this is the way the world does it. Real leaders have the courage to stand against the crowd, even their own crowd. 
They don't need approval, they just need a calling. They don't do what's easy, they do what's necessary. And David walks into that valley fully confident in his God and in the methods God had taught him. But I think something else was going through David's mind as he walked towards this impending crisis. You think David was proud of what Israel, God's people, had become? Or is it possible that the demons of doubt and discouragement tried to whisper in his ears, what's the point? Why risk your life, your career, your reputation? Just wait until you're retired to say that, write that. But in that moment of destiny, David realized that God had been preparing him his entire life for this moment. He did not like what Israel had become, a commune of cowards. But what Israel could become, this was what illuminated his sanctified imagination. The Israel he wanted to belong to, that's what drove him forward, faith in what could be, not in what was. And Ellen White warned us, unless the church, which is now being leavened with her own backsliding, shall repent and be converted, she will eat the fruit of her own doing until she shall abhor herself. And I just wonder if we are eating the fruit of our own doing. Is it just me or is anyone else concerned about what we have become? Are we that nation in Isaiah 58 who believes they're doing righteousness, wonders why God is not noticing them or hearing their prayers? Stay with me. Allow me to describe a little more reality. Today we see a movement in which so many of our young adults go through Adventist schools only to be inoculated against our mission and message. This is a tragedy that deserves our immediate attention. Lucifer's been put on notice. If we did some soul-searching with the fruit, with the results, with the reality of our educational system, would we be proud of what we see? Data from church surveys consistently show us that nearly 70% of our young people, our best brightest, our future, leave us as soon as they are no longer under our immediate care. And before the crisis broke, Saul and Israel thought they were fine. All was well. After all, they were God's chosen people, weren't they? But we know that character is revealed in a crisis. And the message Ellen White shared more than a century ago applies to us today. 
the message to the Laodiceans is applicable to Seventh-day Adventists, who have had great light and have not walked in the light. It is those who have made great profession but have not kept in step with their leader that will be spewed out of his mouth unless they repent. But what does really receiving that message look like? What is the metric that we will know God's people are starting to receive the message? This testimony, if received, will arouse to action and lead to self-abasement and confession of sins. It will lead us to begin to think differently and to do differently. True repentance and confession are more than words, votes, documents, and coalitions. The great sin in Christ's day was the belief that a mere assent to the truth constituted righteousness, that because we think right, we must be right. Friends and church family, we cannot keep silent any longer. We cannot keep touting that we are rich, increased in membership, and in need of nothing. We can't keep claiming that this is great Adventism that we have built. Because we all know too well, far too well, that something, something isn't right. If the winds of prophecy are being held back because Jesus loves his remnant too much to see them lost, then what are we to do? I believe when we recognize what we have become, when we admit the impossibility of putting a good face on everything we do, and then by God's grace, confess it to the world and to the Lord. We are miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked. We have gloried in ourselves rather than in his glory. That we have heaped up the blessings of heaven for ourselves. And I'll admit in my own life, I came to a point where I nearly gave up on the Advent movement. I felt overwhelmed by discouragement because I would read the Bible and the spirit of prophecy and I would look at the reality around me. Something doesn't line up here. Do I give up on the testimony of Jesus or, or do I give up on the movement itself? And like Jesus' disciples, I asked, where else would I go? I have friends, you have sons and daughters, classmates, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, who have left this movement. Their absence keeps me up at night. I toss and turn in my bed as I think about my friends. Dozens of classmates that no longer walk with the Lord or the remnant, and I ask, why did they leave, and why am I still here? 
And from that tossing in the middle of the night, a thought has emerged. I don't think those friends, sons, daughters, classmates, nieces, nephews, and grandchildren left the remnant church. It left them. It left them thinking that the current state of the church, the church of Laodicea, is the remnant foretold in prophecy. And what they learned to call Adventism, Jesus weeps over as Laodicea. So why do I stay in this movement declared by its prophetic messenger to be enfeebled and defective? Because I've read her past. I've read the future in those red books that sit on my library shelf. I've seen glimmers of hope not from what I see, but from what I read, from conversations I have, and from moments like this. I proudly call myself a Seventh-day Adventist not because of what is, but because of what can be. I fear sometimes that we have done nearly everything God warned us not to. But I also know he hasn't given up on this movement. His bride, his church, this remnant people is the only object on earth upon which he bestows his supreme regard. And it is still the theater of his grace. Look at God's goodness. If it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, there is a lot of goodness. We live longer. We know how to prevent disease. We know how to reverse disease. We pretty much know all the answers to the problems this world is facing. And yet I'm afraid that we have put those things in a vault locked it and thrown away the key, and we're sitting on this diamond mine of truth, and oh, we, we owe it to the world to open it up, live it, and share it with everyone we can contact, come in contact with. I've read about the church I want to belong to, a living, breathing movement that keeps moving closer and closer to the calling that Jesus has for her. And as that rock left David's sling, all heaven rejoiced at the courage of one man. In a moment, the fate of Israel, the culture of Israel, and the trajectory of God's movement forever changed. Never forget how one man, one woman, one young adult... One leader like you can make a difference. I still believe this movement can pivot and that its great decisive pivot will forever change the course of history. I still believe a divine disruption is coming. But it's going to require us to confess our personal collective and corporate sin and selfishness. 
And until this happens, I question if anything will change. By the grace of Jesus, we can do this. David had the faith of Jesus. He saw what could be, not just what was. He saw possibilities, not just impossibilities. And with that in mind, I want to share two things on my heart. First, with Jesus, I weep over what we have become. And I want to confess my sin and my selfishness in any and every way that has brought us to this point. And I hope that more leaders, leaders like you, will do the same. Second, there are countless individuals in this movement who are desperately looking for hope. And tonight, I'd like to begin a conversation about what can be. If what we have been told is true, one day we will recognize how God qualifies men and women by His Spirit and not by our votes and not by our degrees. One day we will see a mighty movement such as the world has never witnessed. One day we will stop building programs and infrastructure for our reputations. And we will go into the cities and do a work to relieve the suffering of humanity around us. We will do this not for our own glory, but for the glory of Him who sits on the throne. One day, we will remember our first calling to prevention and education in health care. One day, we will get back to true education teaching young men and women how to think and not be mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. One day more of us will be unashamed to preach about the giant of our day, the culture of Babylon and her crumbling system of selfishness. One day those who identify with the remnant movement will be the most kind, most patient, most unselfish people on the earth. And one day Jesus will stand up and he will say, well done. My people are ready. They've held nothing back. They've finally invested their treasure in heaven. A world has been warned and many have been won to the remnant, the bride of Christ. But I realize that day may not be today. But it will be one day. So I'm going to wait and pray for the patience of the saints until the day when the Lord lays our glory in the dust and does for us what it is not in our power to do for ourselves. And my prayer is this. Lord, we have gloried in our growth. Yet so many we love have walked away. We've gloried in our rightness and not your righteousness. Lord, help us to glory in this, that we know you. Lord, please forgive us. Please bring your glory back 
to this movement. Lord, we want to look forward to that day when we joyfully inhabit not just the church I want to belong to, but the one our friends and families and classmates and sons and daughters want to belong to as well. Lord, we want to be a part of that movement of which Solomon writes, Who is she that looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners? Lord, the church I want to belong to is terrible. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.